Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. I hope that this message encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. Now, I want to remind you that we are in the middle of our year in the story, which is really this deep dive into God's great story and our place in it. If you'd like more information about that or more information about our community here at Restore, you can get that on our website at restoreaustin.org. We'd really love to see you soon. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, Restore. Ah, thank you. That's so much better than my church does. Y'all are very nice. Um, I've I've loved you guys from afar for a long time. Um, My wife and I started Redemption Church in Houston, um, which is right in the inner loop, so southwest corner of the inner loop of 610, if you know Houston at all. We're near Rice. We're near the Texas Medical Center where my wife works. Um, We've lived in the area for now 10 years. Anyway, um, about five years ago, we started a church, and through that process, um, I got to know Zach and then Amy and now the kids and have seen you guys get started over the past, uh, I don't know, three and a half years now. Um, Actually, my wife and I snuck over and took a Sunday off, and actually we were here at y'all's launch service back in 2016, and so it's a fantastic treat to be back here with you guys today. Um, I love you even though I don't know you guys. I have a deep amount of affection for y'all. I love your pastor like nobody's business. He is a friend through thick and thin, and I hope y'all love and encourage and support and serve him and Amy very well. They need it. They deserve it. Um, Anyway, so uh, when when Zach told me that he wanted me to come preach and told me that they were going to be doing this mixtape series. He said, preach anything in the, in the world that you want. Now, I preach about 50 Sundays a year, so I'm like, uh, I got like dozens and dozens and dozens of things um, that I feel like burdened with all the time, that I get excited about, that I get loud about, that I go on for way too long about. I um, mean, as I started thinking about like, what's the one thing that I'm going to explain to um, this church that doesn't know me and that I'm not going to get to like be back at on a regular basis? Like, what's the, the one thing? Um, I just, I, I had all these ideas, um, and I, I'm, I'm a man of ideas. Um, I like ideas, and part of that's like hardwired in me. Um, my wife and I actually lived in Austin for a couple of years, about 15 years ago, when I was a fresh college grad. I started a um, PhD math program here at UT Austin, so um, we actually love Austin as well. But, but like that makes me a heady guy, a thoughts guy, an ideas guy, an over-explainer guy. And so when you ask me what's the one thing, my mind just goes, I could go a million different directions. Um, but what I decided as I was um, thinking and praying and reflecting and trying to figure all of this out is you, you, you don't need more ideas. What you actually need is something a little bit more mysterious, a little bit more powerful, a little bit more simple, something that you, you do know, something that you're well acquainted with, but something I'm afraid that we've defined away. And here's, here's the bottom line of today is all we need is love, right? Like, um, imagine if we lived in the tomorrow land of, like, never having heard a Beatles song before, and y'all would think that that was, like, a really genius and brilliant line. But, but really, all we need is love. You see, um, as, as heady as I am, um, I, I think that uh, the, the American church is oftentimes way too heady. I think we get um, way too much wrapped up into the definition of, of things like love. I, I argue with a lot of people over a lot of theological things, not because I like it, but because I'm hard-headed, and if you want to come argue with me, I'll argue with you about things, even though I don't really want to argue with you about things. Um, but the thing that I get like confronted on um, more than anything else is people ask me, how do you define love? Right? So, 
so love is at the heart of our faith. Love is at the heart of who Jesus is. Um, John, one of Jesus' best friends, whom we're going to be hearing from this morning, tells us that God is love. Now, when we try to live into this, when we try to preach this, when we try to practice this, when we try to experience this, um, I'm afraid that we, we, we overdefine it. Right, Because we start to say these things and we start to preach these things and then we start to do things that make the people around us very uncomfortable because we become like inclusive and loving and humble and all these sorts of things and, and, and we go on and on and on about love and then pretty quickly somebody, typically like somebody that's been in the church for a very long time and if you've been here in the church for a very long time, like I hope you feel welcome and safe with me here this morning, but I think the longer we've been in church, the more likely we are to ask preachers questions like this and it's questions like this that kill us and, and the question is, how, what, do you, what do you mean about love? How do you define love? What is love, right? So um, I'm, I'm convinced that love is love. I, I'm convinced that love has a delight component, that it has a joy component, that it has an enjoyment component. And when we define it, um, oftentimes this is what we define away. As Christians, typically what we um, say that love is, is love is sacrificial, that it's self-giving, that it's committed, and it is all of these things. But I'm deathly afraid that we as an American church and we as followers of Jesus define away love of God and love of neighbor as as something that's merely sacrifice, as something that's merely commitment, and something that has no delight, no joy, no intimacy, no vulnerability, no actual love. So that's the sermon this morning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to um, basically preach it to you now, and then I'm going to let John preach it to you, and we'll build it from there. Um, but just so that um, I'm very, very clear, this is all I want to do. I want to redefine love. Um, like, like I mentioned, I... Um, we, we spent a little bit of time here in the math PhD program, and I didn't know I was going to be a pastor back then, obviously. I was in the wrong program if I thought I was going to be a pastor. Um, but I spent a couple of years there and then kind of got um, jaded and cynical and didn't want to be a, uh, lonely anymore. Um, and so I quit the PhD program and took a job in finance. I worked there for a couple of years. And then we ended up in uh, Houston, where my wife did graduate school, and we never left. And I did seminary, and we planted a church. And then finally, after 13 years of marriage, a year ago, we had a little boy, and he cost us tons of tears and tons of years, and he is freaking fantastic. Like, I just, I love him, and he's teaching me um, new things about what it is to love and to emote and to feel and to have affection, and very really, when God describes himself as a good father, I'm like, I get that so much more than I ever did before, but also he does these things that terrify me. Because, like, as a father, I know the things that sometimes I learned growing up about about love and about what affection were, like they broke me in very particular ways and I still see that brokenness now into the last half of my um, like uh, fourth decade. And I am very afraid, which doesn't mean I'm in my 40s, right? Just to be clear there. Um, so, um, right? Like math joke. Um, so, uh, but, but, but I worry greatly about my son and about the ways that we're breaking him, right? So, so when, when I define love and when I, when I try to tell you guys what love is, what, what I'm doing day in and day out with, with my wife and with our family and with our church family and with our friends, we are defining love in the flesh for my little boy. Now, when I was a little boy, um, I think that one of the things I would have thought was most loving of my parents is I have these very vivid memories of like driving around in the car 
and I'd be like beating up my little brother because I was mean and he was very sweet. He was always the sweet one, which means he always got picked on and I would headbutt him and I would like take his stuff and I was just like very mean to him and my parents would yell at me and they would scream at me and they would be like, don't make me pull this car over and we'd drive and like eventually if I was just quiet enough and silent enough and pretended to be repentant enough for long enough, eventually um, the, the, the promised spanking that I was going to get when I got home, it would just like go away. Like if, if I was just good enough, kind enough, meek enough, mild enough, quiet enough, if I could just be ignored enough, then what my dad's love for me meant as a little boy was eventually by the time I got back home, maybe he wouldn't spank me. And maybe I could say in that moment, he loves me, right? You, you guys understand that this is oftentimes how we think the gospel works. This is oftentimes the way we think that God's love works. And I've, I've spent the last decade plus now kind of relearning and unlearning and redefining and coming to understand that God actually really loves me. Um, I had this beautiful story with my little boy, and this last story I'll tell about my little boy, because I could go on, on about him for like hours and hours, and y'all would be like, this is cool, but can we get a lunch now? But like, I, I, love, I, I love my little boy. His name's Asher. He's back in y'all's kids program today, and I hope he's behaving for um, like the, the, the kids workers, because he loves biting me, so I hope he doesn't like biting any of your kids. Um, anyway, so he's only 11 months old. He doesn't bite that hard. They'll be okay. But, but my little boy, um, it, w- it was the other night, and um, Kim was still on her way home from work, and I had gotten him a little bit early. And I was in the kitchen um, starting to do something. Maybe I was cleaning dishes or something. And, and I noticed that he's, he's like at that stage where he's crawling around, but he's not walking. So he pulls up on everything. And he opens all of our cabinets. And we've been like those um, kind of naive first-time parents that are like, ah, we can just get away without ever really baby-proofing everything. Um, like he'll, he'll be okay. And so just all of our cabinets open and open and open. And, and he's there, and, and he's kind of playing, and he's banging, but he's not doing anything too bad. And then I notice in just a minute, I, I hear him. He's standing there at the cabinet, and he kind of bangs and it goes clack, 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 and he's just standing there. And then I notice that he's looking at me, and he just says, no, 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 no. And I'm like, that's what you think of us, right? There's just like this like heartbreaking moment here of my little boy, knowing somehow that he's loved, knowing somehow that he's safe, but thinking the thing that resounds and repeats in his head over and over and over is no, no, no. And, and I got to thinking about this, and I just, I like it, it literally broke my heart, and I told my wife, and it broke her heart. And as I was thinking about this, I realized that when we're thinking about God's love, so many times we think that we're the kids at the cabinet slamming the door, and all we think is, no, 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 no. And maybe we have a little mischievous grin in our face, but what we really expect from God is no, 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 no. And, and I think this is the wrong view of who God is because I know that as an imperfect father, like this broke my heart. That's not who I want him to think of me and my wife as, and it's not the way I want him to think about himself, and I don't want him to think that he's a little naughty boy, that he's a bad boy. He's, he's an 11-month-old, and he's absolutely perfect, and I love that kid. And so as he sat there saying, no, 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 what I did was I just, like I swooped over, and I picked him up, and I'm behind him, and I kissed him on his little cheek, and I whispered in his ear, yes. Yes, yes. And I, I, like I just, it stirred my heart because I want him to know that I love him, that I don't just formally love him, that I'm not just committed to him, that I won't just sacrifice for him, although I will do that. I don't want my love just to be for my kid, the kind of love that is, I worked hard for those green beans, I worked a lot of hours for those green beans, I cooked those green beans, and now you are going to eat them whether you like them or not. Like I don't want that to be the kind of love that my, my child experiences. I want him to hear the yes. 
I want him to hear the yes and feel the yes and know the yes. I want him to know my embrace and to know my kiss and to know my affection and to know my joy. I love my son. And this is who Jesus is, right? So 2 Corinthians 1.20, which is not where we're going to be today, but 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that all of God's promises have their yes to us in Jesus. Jesus is the divine yes. Jesus is God looking at all of us who are saying, no, 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 no. Jesus is God picking us up and whispering in our ears, yes, yes, yes. Now, with all of that theology, I actually want to tell you a story about Jesus from um, John chapter 13. Um, and so, so what, what I'm doing, um, I give long introductions sometimes, and I give long introductions so that we can get a little bit faster once we get into the text. And what I want to do is I want, you to, I want to prep you to read the story in a certain way. Right, the, the text matters. Um, you guys have been talking about the text. Um, like last week, I know that Zach taught you um, that, that the text is not the ultimate in, end in and of itself. The text is not the goal. Jesus is the goal. Yes, oftentimes the text is, is, is tells us about Jesus and leads us to Jesus and shows us about Jesus, but something more than the text has to happen. We have to have an encounter with the spirit of the living Christ. Like something has to change in us more than just intellectually. We don't just need definitions. We need Jesus. We don't just need the text. We need Jesus. Now, um, along those lines, um, when we come to the text, it matters how we read. We can read it in a way that steals life. We can read it in a way that just gives more law, more um, burdens, more commandments, more things that will sap our energy and joy and all of that. Or we can read it in a way that gives us life, that shows us who God really is, that invites us into the divine yes that is Jesus. I want you guys to read with me that way this morning because I think this passage could change our lives. I think it could change our spiritual lives. I think it could change our home lives. I think it could change our community group's lives. And I think it could change your neighborhoods and your city. All that said, let's turn to John chapter 13. I'm gonna be reading from, chapter, uh, from verse 21 through 35 today. Um, now, I'm preaching from the NASB, the New American Standard Bible this morning, um, which is a translation that's known for being very literal. And, and I want to read that to you um, because it's particularly literal. Because there's one weird phrase here, right? Y'all remember those ads like, what's that one weird trick to lose belly fat? This is the one weird phrase to understand the love of God. And the NASB, as literal as it is, as wooden as it is, as much as sometimes it's painful to read, it gets it right in a, in a way a bunch of your other better translations are actually going to kind of like, shy away from, and I don't want us to shy away from that, so this is why I'm using this particular translation this morning. Okay, so here's what's happening in John chapter 13. Jesus has this band of merry men and women who follow him, who he's been teaching, who he's been making alive, who he's been casting demons out of and healing and turning the world upside down together with. Um, Twelve of them are known as his disciples, his, his apostles. They are um, his guys. Now, the night before Jesus is going to be crucified, he has the last supper. This is the last supper. Supper scene. In the middle of the Last Supper scene, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. So at the beginning of John chapter 13, we're not going to read the very beginning, but the beginning of the chapter says, now Jesus, knowing, realizing, understanding that it was his time to leave his disciples, to depart from the world, having loved his disciples, what he did was he loved them to the very end, or he loved them to the uttermost, right? So John, the, this disciple of Jesus's, who's writing about 60 years after Jesus, he 
he's recollecting and thinking about these last couple of days that he was together with Jesus before the, before the crucifixion, and he has this very long scene. It's from chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17 and then on to the crucifixion, but we've got this multiple chapter scene in, in the mind of John where about 60 years later he's thinking about two these nights with Jesus, and he's like, here's when he really loved us. Right, so if you wanted to find love biblically, John 13 is the place to do it. So Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He tells them, you're not going to understand this until I'm crucified because this is, my, this is my interpretation of the cross, which is a whole thing we can't go into right now. But then after um, he, he washes their feet, he tells them, he quotes from a psalm about, hey, the one whom, who has eaten my bread is going to lift his heel against me. And then we jump in in verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit. And he testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. So I like to put myself um, in the story. I like to read um, slow and with some detail. I like to think about sights and sounds and flavors. And like I, I want to I be earthy. I want to be in there. I want to I take these tiny details of the text and see what they teach us, see where we might gain life from them. So I want you to imagine you've known Jesus for a couple of years and you've seen him raise one of his best friends from the dead, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, this family that he loved, he weeps with, he celebrates with, he eats with. One of the sisters loves him so well that she like weeps and washes his feet and like all of, all of this stuff, right? So Jesus, Jesus loves these people and he's been serving and preaching these crazy things, and you realize there's some opposition, and not everybody loves him. And, and he starts telling you these things, that he's going to go away, that he's going to be crucified, that he's going to die. And you don't quite understand it, because you're convinced that he's the Messiah, that he's the Christ that Israel has been waiting on for thousands of years. So, so you have these large expectations of who he is, and you have these hopes, and then there's this Passover, which is about the slaughter of the lamb. It's this ancient um, celebration for Israel, and on this night of the Passover, Jesus gives you very particular instructions to go and prepare a room, and to get the, to get the meat, and to get the bread, and to get the drink, and you're there, and you're sitting, and you're selling celebrating, and you've been talking, and Jesus has been teaching you this weird thing about washing each other's feet, and he's told you to do this for each other, and you're like, that's not the way the world works, Jesus. Slaves don't wash kings, or slaves wash kings' feet, not vice versa. How are you, our king, washing our feet? And he's teaching them, and he's kind of blowing their minds, and as they're sitting there, and they're eating, and they're celebrating, and they're enjoying each other, Jesus gets heavy. Like something in the room changes, his tone changes, his demeanor changes, his bearing changes, but something is off. Jesus is troubled in spirit, and John knows it. So there's the 13 of them, at least. It's the 12 disciples and Jesus, and maybe some other people. We're not exactly sure, but they're sitting around, and all of a sudden, Jesus is different. For all the raucous conversation, for all the theological debates, for all the everything, Jesus is different. And what he explains in this moment, what he tells them in this moment, is truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, I say to you, listen up, I really need you to hear, please, please listen. I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me, 
So Jesus is heavy, and then he starts lobbying accusations at his friends. These are like his 12 ride or dies. These are his 12 guys that are in it to the end, the ones who are going to say, I will never leave you. No, not me. No, not me. No, not me. Jesus is very heavy, and he looks around, and he says, one of you guys is going to betray me. And Jesus knows this because he's Jesus, but Jesus feels this. And the room feels this. And there's a weightiness. And all of a sudden, everybody's like, what's, what's he talking about? Are like, we going to betray him because we're going to wear the wrong t-shirt to like his sister's wedding? Like, what, what's happening? How are we going to betray Jesus? I don't think any of them think that what he's saying in this moment is, hey, one of you guys is about to sell me out um, for 30 coins and I'm going to be arrested and taken off and stripped and beaten and nailed to a tree for you. Even though he said that, they never quite hear that. So he's like overwhelmed in this moment and feeling this in this moment and sharing in this moment, opening, opening his, his emotions emotional and inner life up to them in this moment. There's this heaviness that I think the the disciples feel, and then Jesus starts to explain to them. He starts to narrate his inner world to his closest friends. Now, I don't know about you guys, but y'all ever feel the pressure not to tell people when you got junk going on in your life? Especially if there's like a group of 12 of them, and it's like, all your bros, right? Like, these these are manly men sometimes, right? These are fishermen, Jesus is a carpenter. These are these guys, and Jesus is sitting around the table, and they're eating, and they're enjoying, and they're doing their thing, and what Jesus wants to do right now is have a little counseling session. He wants to tell them about what's going on. He wants to tell them about what he's feeling. He's, he's very forthcoming. Truly, truly, I say that one of you will betray me, so the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one of them, uh, of which one of them he was speaking. Right, so at the, at the table, there's heaviness. Jesus says, one of you guys is going to betray me, and he's just crestfallen, and everybody's like, what is he talking about? Is he talking about you or you? Like, like, and so they, they start looking around, they start feeling this, they start wondering, hey, this is, this is obviously pricking the spirit of Jesus in deep ways. What's going on? Then there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us, of who it is, uh, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, this is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. Okay, so Jesus starts opening up. They, uh, they start looking around, like, is it you? Is it you? Is it you? It certainly can't be me. I don't know. And, and, and what, what John tells us is that there's one of the disciples in Jesus' bosom. Now, this is the one weird phrase that I think opens this passage up in, in new and profound ways for me. Um, so this is, this is what the Greek literally says, is John is in the bosom of Jesus, which most of our translations will just say, hey, he's sitting next to Jesus. He's in the place of honor. He's near Jesus. He's close to Jesus. But what the Greek actually says is he is in the bosom of Jesus. And now, why this is interesting to me is because as they look around and they think, is it him? Is it his? So, so Peter looks from across the table at John, this one who's in the bosom of Jesus, and says, yeah, yeah. And he kind of nods at him, and they like, make a little like, you know, speaking, and like, nobody can hear, and they're trying to communicate without actually saying anything. And then all of a sudden, John like, leans his head against Jesus' chest. And he asks him, Jesus, what are you talking about? 
So you, you think about this moment, right? You think about this moment that John is already in the, in the bosom of Jesus. I'll return to this here in just a second. But he's, he's close enough to Jesus. Maybe he's in the lap of Jesus or like right next to Jesus or like, I, I know this is a weird word to use with Jesus, but like he's snuggled up next to Jesus so close that from across the table, Peter says, hey, John, like ask Jesus what he's thinking. And John's immediate reaction is to put his head on the chest of Jesus. And I want to ask, what is it like to put your head on the chest of Jesus? Right, this God-man, this one who created all things, who stepped down into our history to take it upon himself, this, this one who, who made us, who knows us, this all-powerful one. Right, what, what is it like to put your head on his chest? What does it smell like? What's his heartbeat sound like? What's his heartbeat sound like in this moment when he's like overcome with grief and worry and concern about the fact that one of them is going to betray him? Right, you, you notice in this moment, in this chapter, what John is saying, hey, I want you to know Jesus, having loved his disciples, he loved us to the uttermost. Yes, he washed our feet. That helps define our love. It shows this, this sacrifice, this servant nature, this commitment. Yes, all of that. But I want you to know that, that um, when, when he was overcome with grief, what Jesus started doing was he started opening up his emotional life to us. And as he did that, there was somebody that was sitting so close to him that he could lean his head over to, into his chest to to smell him, to hear him, to feel him, head in chest, so that they could whisper, and John could have a secret with Jesus. Hey, Jesus, what are you talking about? Hey, Jesus, tell me. And Jesus whispers back, hey, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tear a little bit of the bread off, and I'm going to put it in the mouth of the one who is going to betray me. You see, John is in the bosom of Jesus, and in this moment, for the very first time, John, the author of this gospel, starts telling us that he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Right? This is a title that's popular for John. It's well known for John because John uses it several times throughout this gospel. This is the first time. How does John know that he's beloved by Jesus? How does John know that Jesus loved him? Is it because somebody told him about the crucifixion? Well, yeah, obviously that would show Jesus' love in a profound sense and in a real sense. John knows what, what Jesus' love, yes, means because of the foot washing, because of the sacrifice, because of the commitment, yes, all of that. But John starts calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he carries that name for the next 60 years. He's an old dude by the time he writes this book. He's thinking, 60 years ago I had this night with Jesus. Jesus, and I started calling myself, I am the one whom Jesus loved. He loved me. You want to talk to me about facts and figures and historical anomalies and crucifixion and resurrection, and I will testify to all of that for you. I will let you know that. I will argue till I'm blue in the face with you about certain theological things. But what I really need you to know is this life, this cause of life, this source of life, this one who is life, who took on flesh, he somehow was here and he loved me. In his moment of grief, in his moment of sorrow, in his moment of feeling overwhelmed by the weight of the world, he opened himself up to me. He said, I'm very grieved. I'm going to be betrayed. And then I was so close to him that I leaned my head on his chest. I was in his bosom, and we had a secret moment. I asked him. I whispered to him, and he whispered back, and he told me. Now, J Jesus, in the very next chapter, is going to tell all of these people, hey, you guys realize that I'm not treating you like servants anymore. I'm treating you like friends. Here Here's the difference. 
Friends know what their master is up to. Friends are in on the secret. Friends have intimacy. Friends, the master who's not actually a master, the the master who's really a friend, the friend tells them things, lives in inner mutuality with them and things. Right? So, so, So you see all of these different aspects. We see some physical nearness. We see some emotional vulnerability. We see some shared secrets. We we see all of this, and all of this needs to define, needs to color, needs to help us feel what Jesus' love is. Because as John is here, he's not just beside Jesus. He's in the bosom of Jesus. And as great as that is for John, John expects that to also be the case for you and me. See, John is in the bosom of Jesus, and John's expectation is that Jesus came in order to bring us into the bosom of God the Father. Right, so what John starts his gospel with is he tells us this Jesus has made God known. This Jesus, the only God who was with God. This is John 1.18. Um, we translate this as the only God who was with God. What it actually says is this only God, this Jesus who became flesh for us, this Jesus was with God. What it actually literally says in the Greek, this, this only God who was in the bosom of God has made him known. John is here in the bosom of God and what he wants us all to know is that the work of Jesus, the invitation of Jesus, the begging of Jesus is that all of us would enter in together with him into the bosom of God. You see, Jesus came to actually embody the love of God, not just as sacrifice, not just as service, not just as formality, not just as, hey, if you shut up long enough in the back of the seat um, and we get home and you haven't caused any more trouble, then maybe I won't spank you. No, Jesus is actually the whispered yes in our ears where God actually loves us. He really fully, intimately, vulnerably, affectionately, and joyously loves us. He's come. His entire purpose is to invite us into the bosom of the Father. Now, now, when we think this, what, what I want to do is I want to um, start reconsidering, if this is the case, I want us to start rehearing some of the things that Jesus says Right, so, so John, writing in 1 John, um, what, what he tells, it's, this is the very beginning of 1 John 1, and we don't have it up on the screen for you, um, but you can look it up in your, in your Bibles when you get home. The very beginning of 1 John, what John is, he's, he's writing about the same timeline, so like in the 90s AD, about 60 years after Jesus, and John says, do you realize that the life, the, the life, like no qualification, the life, the one who started life, the one who is life, the one who has life in himself, you realize that that life like took on flesh and became manifest for us. You realize that this, this mythical one, this, this divine one, this God man, I've actually seen him and I've heard him and I've touched him and I've hugged him and I've hung out on his side and I've put my head on his chest. I have seen him. And what John goes on to over the next couple of verses is he invites us. He says, we have fellowship with the Father and with his Son. And I'm writing all of these things to you in order to invite you into the same fellowship that I have with the Father and with the Son. I want you to have communion with God. 
I want you to partake of God. I want you to share in God. I want you to know his love. Now, I think John thinks this because of his own experience and because of a bunch of things that Jesus said, right? One of these is Jesus invites us not just into um, formal religious apprenticeship, but Jesus invites us into friendship. Friendship is intimacy. Friendship is secrets. Friendship is we know him for real. Um, then Jesus says in John 15, 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide and live in my love. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide, live, make your house in, make your room in, make your life in my love. Can I just ask, like, how different our realities would be if somewhere deep in our soul we really had confidence that the God of the universe loved us? Not just formally, not just as his official position, but, like, really loved us, really wanted us in his bosom, Right, here's one of the things I like to do. I like to think of um, God and Jesus on a day off, right? The Father and the Son, and they're hanging out. Maybe the Holy Spirit's there. I don't know, they're cooking breakfast, throwing the football around, right? I don't know, God doesn't do that, but just bear with me for a second, right? The Father and the Son. And you think about the, the amount of affection that Zach McCoy has for his little boy, Asher, and the amount of affection and love and joy that I have for my little boy is nothing in comparison with the amount of love that, the, that God the Father has for his son, Jesus. Right? God the Father is overflowing and bursting with affection and joy for his son, Jesus. Right? Because he's a father and he's a good father. But more than that, his son, Jesus, is literally perfect. Right? His son Jesus obeys everything, does everything, impresses him. He's literally the definition of love. He's the embodiment of love and truth and beauty and glory. He's the radiance of the glory of God. When God the Father looks at Jesus, you imagine how much his heart bursts. Right? God the Father wants to kiss Jesus on the cheek, wants to hug Jesus, wants to swoop Jesus up and say, yes, yes, absolutely, yes. God the Father really, actually loves Jesus. How do we define love? Well, of course God the Father would sacrifice for Jesus. Of course God the Father would kneel and serve Jesus. Of course, God the Father is committed to Jesus, but none of these define the love of God the Father. His joy and delight, his beaming, his affection that the Father has for the Son, that's what Jesus has in mind when he says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Make your life in my love. This is the invitation of Jesus, is that every day from now through eternity, between now and your death to your resurrection to the days in glory and the kingdom of heaven that will have no end, from now all the way through, Jesus' expectation, his like pleading, his begging, what he was willing to die for the sake of was to invite you into love, not indifference, not cold, formal, official love, but warmth and affection 
passion and joy enter into the mystery of divine love. This is why 60 years after the fact, John's like, do you realize that Jesus loved me? He didn't just teach me cool things. He didn't just do amazing miracles. He loved me. What would it look like for you 60 years from now, those of us who will still be alive, like what would it look like in 60 years to say and to know that, that with like no pretense, with no hypocrisy, with no puffery, with no pre- pretending, Jesus loves me. I've spent my life knowing that Jesus loves me. Like really, overwhelmingly, he loves me. And what he told me is the amount of love that God the Father has for him, he's told me that that's the amount of love that he has for me. That's what he wants me to live in every single day of my life. Jesus is absolutely God the Father swooping us up and whispering in our ears, yes, yes, absolutely, yes. I really, fully, officially, completely, unreservedly, unabashedly love you. Jesus tells us, I've spoken these things to you so that your joy may be complete. I've spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I'm convinced that this is why Peter says in 2 Peter that we have become partakers of the divine nature. We've become sharers in the very heart of God. We have been invited into the bosom of God just like John was in this passage This is why Jesus says, I'm a vine and you're the branches. You should live in me, abide in my love, hang out in my love. This this should change everything for us. So here's what I want to do is I want to read through um, the the rest of this passage very quickly um, and and emphasize one more thing. But right, so I've already asked the question, what would it look like for us to take Jesus seriously when he invites us into the bosom of God? Right, I think this would absolutely upend our lives. I think we don't have to pretend anymore. I think we don't have to strive anymore. I think we don't have any expectations to meet anymore. I think like we start to have life in Jesus because of this. Right, one of the songs we sang before we came up here actually comes from John 14, the very next chapter here, where Jesus teaches that he's the way, that he's the truth, and that he's the life. Right, Jesus is the way. He's the road, he's the means, he's the ethics, he's, he's the way we operate, he is the way. He's the truth, he's the overarching story, he's the gospel, he's the one who wrote the story in the beginning, he's the one who's bringing the story to completion, and Jesus is also the life. It's this third piece that if you wanna know what spiritual life looks like, how to have spiritual life, what it can look like in your everyday life, this is what it looks like. Spiritual life looks like living into the fact, basking in the fact, marinating in the fact, celebrating in the fact that the God of the universe actually loves me like he loves Jesus. I've been invited into the very bosom of the Father. So let's pick it up in in verse 26. So when Jesus had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan entered into Judas. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. 
Now, none of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose Jesus had said this to him, right? I know Jesus had said the two things, and we connect them very clearly because we know what's going to happen, but they didn't know. They're like, what's Jesus talking about? Um, some were supposing, because, Jesus ha- because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things that we have need of for the feast, or others, that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, Judas went out immediately, and it was night. Right, so Jesus sacrificially continues loving Judas in that moment. Right, so this invitation to the bosom of God, we don't all have to take God up on it. Um, but Jesus is not just inviting John into it. It's not just inviting Peter into it. It's not just inviting the religious superstars into it. Jesus is inviting Judas into it, the Judas who would betray him. So um, I know the welcome video here says, whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever you've done, whoever you've done it with, like all of that is absolutely true here in Jesus. If Jesus can invite Judas into this, if Jesus is weeping over Judas and for Judas with continued love for, Jesus, for Judas, then you got nothing to be worried about. Verse 31, then when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. And you're like, what? That's a whole lot of glories. Jesus saying, hey, this is the most radiant, glorious, amazing thing I've ever done for you guys. You'll understand it later. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And just like I said to the Jews, now also I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Right, I know we like to define away the love of God into some formal official thing. I think we also like to define away the love of the, of the church for each other into some formal and official thing. Like you guys want to change your neighborhood you want the people around you to meet Jesus and understand the gospel? You, you want to change this city? You want the city to become the, the radiant, glorious thing that it could be, and it's so close to being in so many ways? You, you want that to happen? The way that that happens is we take these things that Jesus did, and we start living them out. We start making ourselves emotionally vulnerable to the people around us. We start letting them in on the secrets of our inner life. We start making ourselves vulnerable to them. We start having some real intimacy and affection and joy joy with them. This, this story that, that John says, hey, this is how we know Jesus' love, is he washed our feet, and then in this moment, he opened himself up to me, and I, and I put my head on his chest, and from then on, I knew that I was the disciple that Jesus loved, because he shared his secrets with me, and he told us these things, and like, he really absolutely embraced me, and I was welcome in his bosom, and he loves me, and this is what he's invited us all into. Like, we've got to start taking this seriously, and staking our lives on it, and in our community groups, we've got to start, like, actually opening up and living and authenticity. And with our neighbors, this is the invitation. Not come over to my house so I can debate you on all sorts of theological things. Not just come over and and eat my delicious food, but come over and let me invite you into the bosom of the Father where I live forever and ever and ever in the joy of God himself. Come and live with me and thrive with me and flourish with me. What else do I have? I have the life and love and presence of God. What would it look like if we started taking this seriously? What would your prayer life look like? If you didn't just think that prayer was about asking God for things, but prayer was about being able to celebrate and linger in and know this, this great love that the God of the universe has for you. Um, I, know, I know there's a lot there. I could keep going. Zach asked me to preach on something I was passionate about, so there you go. Um, well, let's go ahead and pray. God, I want to love you like this. God, you love us like this? Could that be true? 
God, for those of us with jaded hearts, with hard hearts, with doubting hearts, with, with junk going on, would you draw us, even in this moment, into your presence, into your fullness, into your life, into your bosom? God, I want to live there. I want to know that. I want to know you. Would you have mercy on me? Would you have mercy on Restore? Would you have mercy on Austin? Would you pour your spirits and therefore your love into our hearts? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.